You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. There's no question that humans have impact. We affect the land we're on. The U.S. Wilderness Act uses the word untrammeled as if it's actually something that still exists. What corner of this world is truly untrammeled? The Earth has been here for 4.5 billion years, and even though some form of humans have only been around for a 40,000th of that time, 2 million years has been more than enough time for us to quote-unquote check out the neighborhood. Perhaps the word trammeled, like many things, is on a spectrum. And on one end of this spectrum is the untouched world that doesn't really exist, and on the other is the bulldozed, tilled, and concreted urban sprawl that we see today. Now, the debate on who has more impact, biker, hiker, or equestrian, has been around at least as long as the mountain bike itself. And many of us have seen studies that show the limited impact that mountain bikes actually have. But I've been hesitant to cover those studies on this podcast. Unfortunately, we seem to be living in a world where facts don't matter. Whether it's climate change, vaccinations, or the 4.5 billion year old globe that we stand on, science is suddenly an opinion. And so when it comes to the impact of mountain biking, I think what's best is not to wallow in the muck with the flat earthers and the moonland hoaxers and simply put our best foot forward. Let's prove that we're not just mountain bikers, but conservationists and true stewards of the land, that we can prioritize our wild places and our eco-relationship with them before our ego-relationship with the activity that we love so much. And to quote one of my fellow mountain bike radio hosts, Drew of Trailcast, quote, you don't need mountains to mountain bike, but you do need trails, unquote. And to take that one step further, to have trails, you need green space, wild space, or at least some space that hasn't been asphalted, flattened, or farmed. The land itself is more important than anything. And this episode, we'll be hearing from a mountain bike group that has made conservation a key part of their mandate. I'm your host, Brent Hillier, and this is episode 56 of Frontlines. My guest is Laura Puckett Daniels. She's the deputy director at the Cresta Butte Mountain Bike Association and is a past guest who joined me in episode 51. Hi, Laura. Welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah. In about 2017, uh, it's kind of sounded like there was um, a conversation going on at uh, at your organization about potentially adding something to your mission. And, and, and that, that addition was, was conservation. And, and so what was kind of happening as a, as a buildup to, to making that change? Our organization was founded in 1983 and the Crest Mountain Bike Association was a volunteer only bike club until 2016. And in 2016, we started to grow and started to see needs in our community that required staff. And so we hired an executive director And that really increased our capacity to do good in our community. It gave somebody a full-time job to focus on trails and to focus on the community's needs. And at the same time that we hired an executive director, 
we also saw a change in visitors to Crested Butte. So we saw a huge increase in visitor numbers, but we also saw a change in the behavior of visitors. And it sure seemed like people were new to the backcountry or didn't really understand how to travel lightly through the backcountry. So in 2016, we saw a huge influx of people overflowing trailheads, overflowing porta potties, piles of human refuse and poop in the woods, people driving over sensitive research sites and wildflowers and things like that. And as a community, we started to really think hard about our tourism-based economy, our outdoor recreation-based economy, and how now that we'd recruited all these people to come into our community and really make our economy flourish, how did we manage the negative impacts that they brought with them? And as a mountain bike club, we really felt like we had the skills and know-how to start doing maintenance on the trails that needed it, but also to create a stewardship arm of the organization. As mountain bikers, we really, really value riding through beautiful places. We value preservation of wild places. We value working um, hand-in-hand with the scientists that work at the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory. We really value all of those things that wilderness and wild places bring to the table, and we saw them being taken advantage of. And with the new executive director on board and with some board energy behind it, we decided to start a trail care and stewardship crew to start tackling those negative impacts that we were seeing. Awesome. So that's the, the Crested Butte Conservation Corps. Correct. And when did that kind of really get rolling? Their first summer was 2017. They are a part of the Crested Butte Mountain Bike Association. We kind of added to the alphabet soup on this one. So we have the CBMBA and now the Crested Butte Conservation Corps is the CBCC. And we decided to give them that name of their own, even though they are one of our programs, because we really wanted to pay homage to the Conservation Corps of the New Deal and the work that they did building bridges and building trails but also because we really wanted them to be a trail crew for all trails and all people, all users, not just mountain bike trails. So the CBCC works on wilderness trails, they work on non-motorized trails, and they work on motorized trails. They work on private land and they work on public land. They work on trail maintenance, sometimes trail building as needed, but really they also do a ton of stewardship work, reaching out to visitors, reaching out to other organizations in the valley, educating the Crested Butte development team riders about how to travel lightly in the backcountry. So their mission is really a lot bigger than just the trail care stuff. And we really wanted their name to convey that. So uh, let's kind of go into some of the the details of that. What are some of the the actual programs that uh, that they're going to do? That's that you know most wouldn't think of a of a trail association doing. You know, obviously there's there's maintenance and that type of stuff out there. But you know what what makes the conservation corps unique and and what specific programs are there, are they out there doing? Our whole goal was to have people on the ground full time. So we set it up with two crews of three for the first two years. And each crew of three worked three days a week. So six days a week, we had coverage in the backcountry. They do a lot of hauling out of trash. You would not believe what is left behind on the National Forest. Maybe you would. I mean, they've cleaned out (laughs) recliners, uh, boats and trailers, toilets, like ceramic toilets from your bathroom that have been left behind, all kinds of a grill, all kinds of things. So they've hauled a lot of trash out. They do clean up a lot of human waste. So a lot of piles of poop and toilet paper that are left behind. 
They, on busy weekends at busy trailheads, they will simply stand at the trailhead all day and reach out to visitors and ask them about where they're going and what they need and tell them a little bit about how to travel lightly in the backcountry. They help park cars at these trailheads because the trailheads have gotten so overrun here that without direction, people just drive into the fields of wildflowers or drive into the rivers and park there. So the National Forest has their forest service and their forest crews. But like most federal agencies in the United States right now, they are really lacking funds. And so the Gunnison National Forest, where we are, is, I think, I should double check this, but I think it's 2 million acres. It's huge. And so they can't cover all the ground that they need to cover. And so we've really stepped in to fill the gap with some of the stewardship and maintenance. We've worked with ranchers in the area to help them when they're moving cows or moving fences or putting up signage so that we can continue to work in harmony with our ranching community. They do commission a lot of routes. They decommission campsites that shouldn't be used but have been used historically. They decommission trails that have been rerouted into more sustainable ways. Yeah, it, it um, you know, unfortunately, it, it seems to be a, a common theme of of uh, of our public spaces, you know, lacking in in funds. I know here uh, where I live in Canada, it's this, it's the same thing. You know, rangers are there's fewer and fewer of them, kind of every year, and and the budget continues to kind of get cut, and and just you don't get that presence, you know, and, and yeah. without that presence, there's just this, you know, things do kind of run amok and, and people do things that they shouldn't be doing, or even sometimes things that they know they shouldn't be doing, but because they don't think they're going to get caught or what have you. Right. Um, yeah. So it's, it's great that, that this kind of presence is, is there. How, how did the conversation go with the, the forest service and, and the parks and, you know, speaking with the land managers about, look, we want to do this. Like how was their first kind of, um, were they receptive to this idea? Were they, were they excited about it from the get-go? Yes. And no, <laughs> I think, um, the County, the national forest, they were guardedly excited. Like, okay, you can do that that'll be fine. We're not going to give you any money for it, <laughs> but you can do it. If you raise the money and hire the people and insure them and do the trainings and everything, we'll let you kind of run with this. And so that first year, 2017 was really a trial year. And after that first year, and we had measurable impacts to show the land managers, they jumped in full, full speed two feet in. We kept incredibly detailed trail logs. We do continue to every single day that the crews are out there. So we can say specifically how many pounds of trash they collected, how many trees they cut down, how many miles of trail they worked on, how many people they talked to. I mean, we really kept detailed quantitative measurements of their impact. And that has really gone a long way with our community to show them that we're not just mountain bikers and we're not just all talk. We're really putting our money where our mouth is to fund this program. And again, it's a trail crew, it's a stewardship crew for all trails, all people. So we really try to be partners and work and good stewards with all the different land managers we work with. That's excellent. Jumping to to last year, 2018. Yeah. You know, what's what's changed? What's new with the program from 2017 when it first got started? Last year we did subtle tweaks. We hired a supervisor to help with tool management and schedule management so that our executive director could continue to focus on the bigger work of the club, the bigger mission of the club, and not just the conservation core. We also got a woman on the core, which we can talk about later. I was super psyched about that. It had been an all-male crew before. 
We hired a high schooler, but essentially their work was the same. They continued to work with land managers on a diversity of lands, doing a variety of maintenance and stewardship projects. The bigger thing is looking forward to 2019. We feel really proud of the work we've done to mitigate impacts that have already happened. But now we're trying to think proactively about what we can do to prevent impacts in the first place. So I I mean, one way of saying that is we're going to really up the stewardship wing of the Conservation Corps and try to have more targeted stewardship activities, more targeted outreach and education to visitors and locals alike to try to really improve people's backcountry etiquette and not just clean up their trash after they've left it behind. That's fantastic. I think it's... um. It, it does a, a number of things. I mean, there is the direct benefit. I mean, and, and you spoke to it of like <laughs> removing trash. It's an easy one to, to yes. measure. It's an easy one to, to see. Right. But there's also this, this benefit of, you know, proving to land managers, proving to the community outside of, of mountain biking that, you know, we are more than just, uh, we're more than just Red Bull Rampage, right? Yes. We're more than just, uh, you know, adrenaline junkies and, and wanting to just go fast in the backcountry. It, it really sheds a great light on mountain bikers, which is fantastic. Well, and that goes back to your first question about adding conservation to our mission. For our board, it was a no-brainer. Like for us, where we live, the kinds of trails we like to ride, we it is a no-brainer that we want landscapes preserved just as much as we want Shreddy Trail. We do not want Shreddy Trail in a not beautiful landscape. We want both to go hand in hand. And we are we have a trails organization in Gunnison that is 28 miles south of us, and they are Gunnison Trails. That is their name, their mission. They are a lot of mountain bikers, but they've built themselves as an overarching trails organization for all kinds of users. And because of our history as a mountain bike club, we have been and always will be the Crested Butte Mountain Bike Association. But we're really growing into a lot more than a mountain bike club because we are the primary nonprofit that does trail maintenance around here and pushes for building new trails. Like we are the trails organization, despite our name. And so I think for us, we're always struggling with this tension between being a club of riders who love to ride and also more conservation minded. And there is a tension there. They often go hand in hand. And there comes moments when we have to decide, do we advocate for a trail that will be really beautiful and really awesome and an amazing amenity? Or do we let that trail go because of the potential risk to wildlife, the potential habitat fragmentation? Like we are now, because we've added conservation, there's a whole new set of questions that we have to wrestle with, but we're really excited to do that. Like we're really excited to engage in those conversations with other user groups and other advocacy groups in our community to decide what's best for our community, not just best for the riders. We've got this history as a mountain bike club that's really rich and that we're really proud of, but we've also added conservation to our mission and we're also really proud of that and really interested in that. And so for us as a club, we're really recognizing that we are a trails organization that goes beyond just mountain bikers. And so we've thought for a long time, how can we get the hikers to see what we're doing? Because they're using the same trails. How can we get the equestrians on board with what we're doing? Because we're they're using the same trails that we're maintaining and building and advocating for. And starting the CBCC was one way that we created a tent that was big enough for everybody to fit underneath it. And it's been really good for our club. It's grown 
our capacity again to fulfill our mission many times over because it's given us paid crews on the ground that are trained professionals to help fulfill our mission. But it's also shown the community that we're more than mountain bikers. It's more than shreddy trails and expensive bikes. It's also a conservation and stewardship ethos and allowed other people to really connect with our club and get more involved. And that's what we want. We want people to feel welcome. In addition to, you know, growing and expanding the the conservation core and, and kind of continuing with the the, the good work, uh, last summer, you, you also created women's specific work days. And how did that program start? Like, where, where did that dialogue begin? That dialogue began at an overnight work weekend in 2016 in the fall, standing around a campfire at like 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> I'm it's not a great joking. spot for ideas. It was perfect. We were all, the guitars were out, people were strumming, people had worked hard all day on building a new trail. We'd had a barbecue and some beers and a raffle, and we were standing around talking with all our friends, thinking about the day and what had been good and what needed work. And one of the things that had become abundantly clear was how few women were there. There were probably five women working on the trail that day, and maybe 85 men, and I'm not exaggerating, like the proportions really were one to 20 at a lot of our work days. And so I was standing around the fire with the president of our board and some other, another woman who had been on the trail with me that day. And we were talking about this and we we're like, how do we solve it? And actually the president of our board says, we start the women's workforce and we call them the WWF. <laughs> like it came to him in a bolt of lightning inspiration. At least that's how I remember it. Yeah, that's great. And uh, at that time, I was a board member. And then in June of 2018, I started working for Simba. And I decided as part of my job duties, I wanted to really make the WWF happen. I didn't want it to just be an idea that happened around the campfire. And so now that especially now that I was paid staff, I was in a position where I could really devote some time to it. And it started actually, we started organizing the spring even before I started working here. We started, I sent out some emails to some other women board members and other women volunteers and a woman bike shop owner in our community and said, hey, we've got this idea what do you guys think? And we held an informational meeting, like a open house kind of thing where we said, do we do this? What would it look like? And we had 30 women show up on a Tuesday night to eat pizza and talk about it. And there was a ton of enthusiasm in the room. And that's when I realized that it's not just our board's idea and it's not just my idea, but actually this is something our community could really use. And then when I started as staff, I really hit the ground running with deciding what could the women's workforce look like? How often could we meet? And I tried to make it a very democratic planning process and said repeatedly, this is not Laura Puckett Daniels's women's workforce. This is our women's workforce. So what do you want to see happen? But I mean, if you've worked with volunteers in the past, you know, there's just something powerful about having a paid person who's dedicated to a task. You can get a lot more done when you're on staff. And so, um, I drove the ship and put some things on the calendar and threw some ideas out there and started a Facebook group and started a mailing list. And we just kind of made it happen. Like how often do these workforce days happen? Um, is it something that, uh, you know, they're on a regular schedule or, or what's, uh, what do they look like? In 2018, of course, it was our first summer. So it was a bit of an experiment. 
we started with, like I said, that one big informational meeting. And then we had another smaller one where we divvied up some tasks and decided who would do what. I invited a woman trail builder from our community to come in and give a educational presentation, like PowerPoint style, about what trail building is and looks like and how it should be done. And we had about a dozen women attend that. And then the, the group of women who had been most involved and I sat down and decided what we wanted it to look like. And we decided that we'd do three women's work days once a month during the core months of summer and see how they went. And so we just kind of started small with like one work day a month for those three months. And we had eight to 18 people come. So pretty good for an after work turnout. We decided after work was easier. A lot of folks are busy on the weekends and we already had the Simba, the big Simba work days on the weekends. And we didn't want to steal thunder from those. Like a lot, the whole time, a big goal of the women's workforce was to get more women involved in Simba and more women coming to traditional work days and not just having their own separate program, but to have an entry point that was welcoming and supportive and educational so that women felt more excited to get involved in the club. So we did the three work days in the summer and we did two women's rides in conjunction with the ski resort here. And they gave out discounted passes so that we could ride the lifts as a group. And we had about I can't remember, maybe 12 people come to those, maybe 16. So pretty good crew of women that showed up for rides. And um, all of it was very much an experiment, but we feel excited about it. And so coming into the next summer, I've already made a calendar and I'm hoping to do two events a month. One is a ride and one is a work day. And so it is called the Women's Workforce. We're really trying to get women working on trails, but I've really heard from the women in the community that they would like to have some group rides too. A big piece of it is community building and making friends and getting outside with new women in the community. And so I think adding the ride component will really be part of that, help fulfill that mission. How do you market these days? How do you kind of get them out there so that you can uh, you can get folks coming to them? Well, again, it's all very much an experiment. So I don't <laughs> pretend to be the expert on this sort of thing. But um very traditional ways of getting the word out. We have a mailing list and we encourage our, and it's an email list and we encourage folks to email it to their friends. Come one, come all. You don't even have to be a writer. If you're just a woman who likes trails, come. So that's part of the the messaging is that it's very, very welcoming. You can have zero experience on a bike or on a trail and you're still welcome. We do posters and then a pretty active social media presence. Crest Butte Mountain Bike Association has a very large reach on Facebook. And so I've created a subgroup within the Simba group for the women's workforce. And we had about 80, 90 people on our Facebook group. And so that was a great way to get the word out. And I would also put events on the main Simba page on Facebook. And of course, invite people to those events, events on our website. I think all of those things worked a little bit. I think word of mouth was really powerful. And at the social media, when people would share it with their friends, that way was powerful. Age-wise, do you see kind of a, a, a range? Like, are you generally getting uh, women or do you even kind of see some girls that are coming out to this as well? Like uh, like teenagers, that type of thing. We've had a couple teenagers come, one of whom I sort of forced into it because I used to be her teacher. But um, <laughs> she actually was great. She came to a couple of them and had a fun time. We are really trying to, I'm hoping this summer to work with the Crested Butte Development Team. They are the local youth bike program here. 
And CB Devo does a work day with Simba during the work season, during the trail work season, they have a coordinated work day. But I'd, I really would love to get the, um, they've got girls specific programs and teams out there. I'd love to get some of those girls out on the trails with us for a women's workforce day. I would say we saw a pretty big range of ages from 16 up to 60. Again, it's a pretty small sample size. We had on average a dozen folks at a work day. I would say for the most part, it was more women in their 20s, which personally is really cool because the Simba membership is mostly men in their 40s. And so to get these young, excited women out on the trails added diversity of age to our programming as well as diversity of gender. Kind of speaking about the those demographics, have you seen a shift in the demographics to the other trail days, like your your big public trail days? Yes. We had two big public trail days before I started the Women's Workforce Trail Days. And then we had, like I said, one educational day and two trail work days, all for women. And then we had, in the middle of summer, we had our annual overnight at the end of July. And the overnight work weekend is a blast. You go out to a backcountry location. Simba provides all the food, all the catering for the whole weekend. You show up with your tent and your camping gear. You work on trails all day, hang out around a giant bonfire that night. We do a big swag raffle and then get up the next morning and do a bunch more trail work and go home. It's a super fun weekend. And at this year's overnight, we saw a, a huge increase in women that participated. I'd say, I, I, did, I did do the math. We had about 25% of the participants were women, which is still not you know equal representation. But when it had been like one to 20 as a ratio, we were thrilled to drop it down to one to four. And we also, that was statistically what we saw because we have everybody sign in. But I really heard from a lot of Simba members and Simba board members that they saw the difference. They saw more female faces out there and they were super psyched about it. And I also heard from a lot of women that said they came because they felt more confident and because they felt like they had more skills and because they had friends to go with. They had like created a posse of women that were going to come out there and do trail work with them. And so they felt a lot more excited about coming to the work weekend. That's that's wonderful to see. And, and you know, it's, it's great all these kind of side benefits as well, right? So, you know, to see an increase in those bigger trail days, are you seeing a little bit more engagement as well from from women? Like, you know, you, you spoke before how, how you were the only female board member. Is that changed yeah. as well? That has changed. I would, That's changed because more women are getting involved, but also because our board has set a very clear goal to involve more women. And so we have made it one of our goals is to diversify our board, particularly by gender in our community. That's what's available. I think we'd love to diversify by race and sexual orientation. We live in a very homogenous community. And so there are limits to what we can do, but we really want to be a more inclusive community all around. And so we've actively recruited women to the board. We are, our board's a little small right now. Our ideal number is 11 and we are at nine members, but two of those nine are women. And I applaud the board for hiring me to be the second full-time staff person. So we do have equal representation in our full-time staff of, of genders. Simba's goal was really to get more women involved in the club. And me personally, I also wanted to see more gender equity just in terms of numbers. But I also really wanted women to feel differently. Like I think the reason they weren't involved is because we had the kind of broified culture 
we had a lot of men dominating board meetings and work days. And there was a particular way that they were running trail work days and, and running board meetings that wasn't welcoming to women or to newcomers at all. And so I think one of the things that I've really had as a goal is to just make women a, more of a qualitative metric of wanting women to feel supported and included. Because I think when women are supported and included in mountain biking and in trail work, then they're able to push themselves and take on leadership roles and reap all the benefits of trail work and of mountain biking that can then have important benefits in their rest of their lives. I can say mountain biking has changed my life. Mountain biking has taught me things that have transformed how I live. And I want other people to be able to have that kind of powerful experience. And I don't want institutionalized culture to keep them away from it. I want to make it a place where everyone feels welcome and like their voice matters. That's fantastic. Uh, so how can folks uh, have a look at, at some of the programs and, and some of the things that the Conservation Corps does and, and also the women's workforce as well? Is there, uh, is there some landing pages on the, the website that, that people can go to? For sure. So if people want to learn more about the Crested Butte Conservation Corps, they can go to the CBMBA website, which is crestedbuttemountainbike.com. And there's a menu bar at the top and the CBCC is one of the main menu items. So they can go there or they can type in directly crestedbuttemountainbike.com backslash conservation hyphen core and go there. And we are the Crested Butte Mountain Bike Association on Facebook. CBMBA. Well, I want to thank you for, for coming back onto the show and uh, and for spending uh, all this time speaking with me and, and sharing about these, these very cool programs and, and what's happening there. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Now, just to confirm some numbers that Laura mentioned, the Gunnison National Forest is almost 2 million acres. It's 1.67 million acres, or just over 6,700 square kilometers. And something that Laura mentioned, and I'd like to dive deeper into, is the image or brand of a bike club versus the role of a trail association. Many organizations are both, and some, like the Central Arkansas Trail Alliance in Little Rock, have rebranded to lean more towards the trail association image. Next episode, we'll be looking at a community that has both a bike club and a trail association. But before we wrap up this episode, I wanted to include a review of my brand new Timberbell. In episode 54, Eric Hillard of BeNiceSayHi.org mentioned the Timberbell that you could toggle on and off while riding. Well, Timberbell was kind enough to send me one of their bells, and I wanted to share with you my initial thoughts. Now, it's winter in Vancouver, and even though it's normally the only Canadian city that doesn't get snow, I spend my winters ski touring and take a break from the mountain bike. So I installed the Timberbell on my commuter, which is a mountain bike, and on the way to dropping my two-year-old Emerson off at daycare, we did some off-roading in the park and tried out the bell. Here's what that audio sounded like. Okay, so we're in the field in North Vancouver, and we're going to test out the new Timberbell. So it's a fairly simple little bell. Uh, it attaches to your handlebars with kind of this little rubber O-ring. So very simple, which is something I like. You know, simple doesn't break. And if you click the button, it will release the, the kind of noise-making bit in the middle. And there you go, you get a little bit of a bell. And it's so easy, even Emerson can use it, which is great. See? Piece of cake, eh? Shall we go test it out? Okay. Okay, let's go test it out. So we'll turn it on. 
and we'll start rolling. And then we'll try to turn it off. And there we go. Now it's off. And back on. It's pretty good. What do you think, bud? Do you like the bell? <laughs> Alright, so that's Timberbell. It's, uh, it's pretty simple. Seems like it works pretty well. And yeah, I like it. Alright, Emerson, can you say bye? Bye bye. Like always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesMTB. And you can send me an email or audio file to info at frontlinesmtb.com. You can stream the show on Mountain Bike Radio, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And if you haven't done so already, leave a review on wherever you get the show. It helps others find the podcast. Don't forget to support the show via PayPal. You can find a link in the show notes, along with a link to the Frontline's MTB Book Club, where a portion of any purchases made on Amazon after following those links will be sent to the podcast. The latest book recommendation is Richard Lowe's Last Child in the Woods. In the show notes, you'll also find links to the Crested Butte Mountain Bike Association, their conservation core, and the women's workforce. You'll also find links to the Timberbell. Huge thanks to my guest, Laura Pocket Daniels. Music, as always, is by Lee Rosevere. Production notes by Jennifer Pride. Field recording help this episode is from the Emmer Dude. Artwork is created by Brandon Gallagher-Watson and BGW Creative. And big thanks to Ben Welnock and the team at Mountain Bike Radio for their continued support. You can find Trailcast and other great shows on the Mountain Bike Radio app. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening, and happy trails.